everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Anything But Typical podcast. This is going to be a fun one. So I'm going to be learning about as much as you guys are about Andy Pfeiffer because one of our other podcast guests on the Anything But Typical podcast said, oh my gosh. So is David Privetera, by the way, of Concord Construction said, you got to have Andy Pfeiffer on your podcast. So he told us about him for a while. So we're going to dive into your story, Andy. I'm anxious to hear more about it. I, I admire your work already. I've seen uh, enough of it that I'm like, yeah, this guy knows what he's doing and it's really good. So before we get into any of that, here's the scenario. You are going from the parking lot at the MAC Mecklenburg Aquatic Center. You're going to go do some swimming. And somebody sees you at O Dark 30 and they realize, oh, hey, um, with clothes on, they, they recognize you with Speedo on, but they, they see you with clothes on walking across the parking like, hey, that's Andy Pfeiffer. And they start talking about you, but they didn't realize they could, that you could hear everything that they're saying. What would you want somebody to say about you, Andy? Well, that I looked good back when I had my clothes off. That would be number one. Um, number two would be that they'd say, hey, you know, that guy he works for owns this place called Arthur Elliott. And that place, so not necessarily me, but that place came up with X. That place came up with this idea for this business that did so-and-so. Maybe it's a famous Super Bowl ad. Maybe that's a short answer to that, but they're the guys that came up with this. So it's a group of people that, that I happen to be a part of or lead that really comes up with some really cool stuff. I mean, that would be tombstone material, you know, and, uh, you know, great, great abs or something. That would be impossible. (laughs) Great abs. Yeah. Before your kids. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I love a piece of that answer, right. Of how it, it can be such an egotistical question, right. You think of, Hey, what do you want people saying about you? And your immediate knee-jerk reaction is to talk about the team that you're leading and, and taking yourself where it's not the, the focal point of you, but the focal point of the entire team and what you're doing as the collective, which is really interesting. Thanks. Yeah, I, I don't, you know, being in the advertising business, I'm not, and, and any business really, right? Like you don't want it to run through you because then it's probably not very well run. But I think in the advertising business, the, the creativity part, I, I would never pretend to have it all figured out or have all the creativity or have all the answers. So I've worked with a lot of mentors that have taught me that you surround yourself with talent and talent begets more talent. And that's kind of how you, you grow this type of business. We sell talent, you know, we sell people and their ideas. So one day maybe I'll be the least talented person in Arthur Elliott and they can say that at least I started it or I, I put the name on the wall. Hopefully they, they keep me, but um, that would be, that would be maybe a long-term goal is to, to replace. There's just so much talent at that place. They come up with such great things. I think the other thing that um, I can't say this without, you know, I can't say all that without saying this, I'd want them to be good people too, right? Like I, I don't, I think having strong ethics is another big part of who we are, who I am, that I need that to be reflected in what we do in Arthur Elliott, that we're not going to be the jerks, right? We're not going to run people over, take their money. That That's not going to happen. So if I was going to leave a legacy, which I think is your question, kind of in a sense, that's that would be the two things is these guys are really talented and they're really good people. Hopefully I hired well, you know, sign of a great leader, right? Surround yourself with better people or people that are better at things than you are. So. Well, that's what the books say. I'm not sure I'm doing it right, but that's <laughs> what I try to do. Yeah. So let's, let's get into your story a little bit before we do though, for the listeners that don't know you, uh, Andy's the principal of Arthur Elliott marketing group, right? And so we're going to talk about the different types of companies you work with and, what you focus on, things like that. But I want to go back to your childhood to start because your grandfather and your father owned a sporting goods store up yeah. in, in uh, Buffalo, New York area. 
Yeah. And I want you to talk to us first of what was it like growing around entrepreneurship? That's a good research, guys. Um, well, you know, as a kid, you don't know any better. You, my mom was a school teacher and we kind of, she was the boss. We kind of clung to her. My grandfather never actually met him, but he was kind of more of an entrepreneurial celeb, right? He was the guy that started the business. And back then, sporting goods in the in the 50s and 60s was golf and hunting and the NFL wasn't really what it is and Nike didn't exist. And so he was really good with, um, you know, from what I understand, bowling, hunting, fishing and golf as far as like pro golfers coming in the shop and stuff like that. And um, my dad was forced to take over the store when he passed away. And I watched him kind of make mistakes and watched him kind of how he treated people. And one thing I picked up on was um, this is a kind of a cool story. We have this, my cousin has it now, but this big boat ship, you know, like a model ship and that's in the family, like really ornate turnbuckles and, like the sales on it are probably wilted, but I knew as a little child growing up, how we acquired that someone couldn't pay their bill at the store. And they horse traded this, this ship for his cash. So that told me that my dad used to basically before credit cards, give out credit to guys. Like if you're, if you came in to get a baseball glove for your kid and you couldn't pay for it, he would do like a layaway program or let you just skate with credit because he trusted you. So there was a total handshake agreement. And one guy came back, couldn't pay him and gave him this thing that he made, which was awesome. And we still have it. And I don't know how much of that happened, but I learned pretty quickly, like the relationships you have with your customers aren't necessarily like customer client. And then we're the company, right? it was friendship. It was, it was, a, it was like, Hey, your family needs this. I need to get you, I need to get it to you. Small town America. I'm not sure it works today, but, um, and I also learned about theft. I remember people stealing from him. I remember employees stealing from him. Um, and I learned about inventory and what, how you, you can have bad partners and buy the wrong stuff. And, and uh, that was the part of entrepreneurship that my dad inadvertently taught me to answer your question. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And and we see a lot of times, especially on the show, that the people that grow up around entrepreneurship will go one of two ways. Either they're bought in and say, hey, I want to be a business owner very early on, or the opposite, where it's like, oh, I grew up around entrepreneurship and didn't think I ever wanted to do that. Did you ever have one way or another of watching your father run this store of the interest in owning business or vice versa, saying, no, this isn't something that's going to be part of my future? You know, I can't honestly say I can't connect those dots. I don't know. I, I saw that as a very risky thing because I watched him struggle with increasing lease rates, bad inventory. There's a whole story about Nike coming to him and saying, you need to buy X amount from us or else. And he said, I'll take the or else. I don't think anyone's going to buy $100 tennis shoes as a fashion statement. And he'll admit to the state, boy, was I wrong, Right but he saw himself as a sporting goods store. So I, I guess in college, I started studying Nike for that reason. I started studying why did they take off? And my dad didn't hook onto that comet that took off. And what did the malls do to the small town America business that he had? Um, but I saw it as all scary stuff that was like really insecure. And you should, uh, you know, on the flip side, my parents were telling me, go get a job not go start a company. I wasn't the kid, you know, there's guys coming, maybe you guys are like this, but I had a guy text me the other day. He's like, started his own. He's a junior at NC state and wants to ment me to mentor him. And he's reaching out via text, which I would never have done in college. And he's got his own junk collection. Like he collects scrap and, and I guess gets rid of it. And then during COVID he worked at Amazon. Like this guy's a go-getter. I was not going after that when I was in school. I know that like I, 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 I consider those guys entrepreneurs. I, and I'll get to the story of how this whole Arthur Elliott thing started. I just still to this day, I don't call myself an entrepreneur because I think, I think that gives me too much credit when there's other guys out there that are spinning their wheels, trying to in their basement, create a business and write a business, you know, and I've heard of them. I know them. Like, you know, I worked in Adventist and see these inventors and stuff like that. It's, it's, um, I got lucky. 
I think more than anything that I fell into this, but um, I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, I, I, yeah. I probably was more scared of being an entrepreneur because of what I saw than charged up to go, you know, write a business plan. Well, and let's, let's get into to that a little bit then. So what, what did lead to you starting Arthur Elliott? I'd say, so, you know, I think everybody does this. I got out of school kind of little, you know, where I was coming from. I was a college athlete. I loved playing baseball. So I thought about baseball, girls, friends, you know, uh, cool stuff. And I thought advertising might be cool. I thought acting might be cool. Tried all this different things. And I did get into acting for a second and realized really quickly that I looked very average. I was white, not funny, not good looking enough to have any success in this at all. And kind of realized that's an entrepreneurial job in and of itself. And I remember my dad saying, do you want to have a family? And I said, yeah. He's like, well, then you need a job because this is not a job. This isn't going to work. I was waiting tables and trying to figure that out. So I bounced around like substitute taught. And so you can kind of see in there, I was always pretty good. One thing, I guess it, it was it like public speaking or talking. I love to teach and stand up in front of kids and talk. My first job jumping into it was a Coke consolidated because I was a waiter at Pizzeria Uno uptown. And the manager of the restaurant came and said, Coke Consolidated's hiring to do, uh, they need this, they need an idiot like you who will talk through a robot to children on behalf of Coca-Cola. So I did that. And my first boss was a guy named Jim Bailey at Red Moon Marketing. And I was basically a traveling DJ through this robot at Walmarts. And um, I, I got in there and, and so my silliness took over and all that, but I realized in that process why I was doing it. So I learned a little bit about marketing and incremental gains and what Coke's strategy was with Walmart. And I, I asked Jim Bailey if I could work for him at Red Moon Marketing. And I did for a little bit after that and then bounced to another agency and, um, and then in, in Ventus. And, and I can basically through those channels, like someone took my resume and said, Hey, there's an opportunity here, or this guy thinks you'd be good here. You know, I never was really pursuing an end to own my own company. It was simply, I didn't want to work here anymore and um, talk to the client. And the client says, Oh, come with me. I'll take you over here to Inventus. That's how I got to Inventus. And, um, and then Inventus, I was walking my dog. So this is the short answer. Sorry if you need to edit out all that crap before that. Short answer is I'm walking I'm my not, dog. One not night. All good. Okay. And I had a client, Napa Auto Parts, which I can get into, but I had the state of Arizona's Napa Auto Parts, not the Napa Auto Parts. I had like all the franchises, they call them jobbers in the state at a previous agency. And for six months, I worked in Inventus. On, on month six or seven, I get this phone call and it's the Arizona guys. And they're like, hey, we want you to come back. And the line was, we work with people, not with companies. So figure it out, right? So I quickly had to figure out, went back to some guys at Red Moon and said, how do I start a business? What do I do? I have this account and they helped me get set up with the state. And, and I was off and rolling in 2007 without a name, without any kind of clue, without any employees. I mean, it wasn't anything like that. It was just simply doing what I already had been doing, account service, account management for this place for like the past couple of years. I just picked up where I left off, really. Um, so in that, though, like the second day that that call happened, the day after the my competitors called me and said, hey, look, Napa Corporate does not want some guy working in his bedroom, working on their business. So you got two options. You can come work for us or we're going to pitch against you and we think we're going to win because we've got, I mean, they bullied me, really. We've got these other accounts. We've got the staff. We've got the knowledge. We've got the relationships. You have one relationship. And I got scared and I said, okay. Um, and I pitched against my old agency that I was at. I pitched against a competitor and a third competitor made a deal with me and said, you keep it, you keep what you get. And you can keep this stupid Arthur Elliott name you came up with. I don't care. I just don't want Napa to ever see that. And in exchange, I'm going to give you more work. And so I saw security, right? So back to your entrepreneurship question, I was like, this, this kind of saves my hide a little bit from me figuring out this stuff on my own. So for the next 
almost 10 years, I contracted through them. I built their business for them. I will say that. And in exchange, they let me hire people that could work here in Charlotte. They're out of Atlanta. And um, I tried to buy them. I tried a lot of things and I started to really butt my head and started to realize like, I know how to do this. This is, this guy is a great guy. I really liked him, but I saw some mistakes he was making and I, w- I would have done it differently. Right. You know, I'm not going to slam him. I said, I would have done it differently. Not to mention I had learned from the previous agency I was at, like I would have treated these people a little differently. I would have done these. So I started collecting notes, I think along the way and got to the point where I said, not that I really want to do this on my own or be an entrepreneur, but I just know, I think I can do this a little better than this. You know, I would never call someone stupid to their face, you know, and belittle them in front of others, stuff like that, that I saw, I just wouldn't do it. And this guy, you know, I just said, I would grow his business. I didn't see his really, he never really had a strategic growth plan and cash flow was always an issue with him. And one day he called and said, um, I can't tell you much more, but I'm closing the doors. You can have it all. See you later. So 2016, March of 2016, I got that phone call, went back into a vendor meeting that I was at and the guy's face went white. And I realized this guy owed a lot of money to a lot of people. And I was on the hook because I had placed some of that media or whatever it would be. But I also got a call from Napa Corporate and they said, you've got two days to write a business plan and get down here and figure out how to clean up this mess. And um, and then I also started calling friends at the time, peers, right? And I said, do you want to quote work for me? Because I couldn't even say that word. I wasn't, you know, these guys, I didn't know if they respected me as a leader yet, you know? And I said, you have these relationships with these accounts. I think we can do this together. I'm going to take the lead. And they were like, do it, let's go. And one person kind of say, I want to do it with you. And I was like, nah, I don't know. But they all fell in line and they started to follow me. And, and, and then I went down to corporate, wrote the business plan, told them how I would do this differently, how I would execute this and handle the budgets and billings so that everybody's safe. This doesn't happen again. And then all the other states of Napa, if you will, started calling and saying, hey, we want you to work with us. We want, we didn't know we were, you know, like the free agent out there. We'll take you. Let's go. So um the next few years of Arthur Elliott were spent refining that staff that I had quickly curated literally in nine hours and figuring out how to acquire talent and add creative in and add, um, you know, Gary, you'll, you'll appreciate this. I had vendors like creative, like media buyers and stuff. I realized shortly thereafter that they wanted to work for me or with us. So I started bringing them all in house, which is something the other business never did. And that's how I kind of built a true ad agency. Prior to that, we were a bunch of account execs that would just contract everything out. And so I started kind of centra- centralizing things, if that makes sense. And um, I don't know how many mistakes I made between then and now, still still screwing it up, but learned a lot about hiring people, you know, and firing people, which is really hard and growing a business. So I, I was an account exec, you know, it's that e-myth, right? I was the guy that was good at something and doing it in my bedroom. And there are days when I wish I was still doing that. And now I own something or run something, I should say. I do have a partner, which we can definitely talk about and managing something, two totally different things. I've had to kind of be somebody I wasn't before. So that's a really long answer, but good thing about podcasts, you can cut a lot of this out, right? (laughs) No, we We, rarely cut. We're good with that. We love it. (laughs) The amount of time, Andy, the amount of times that Gary or I will take us in the weeds is far <laughs> too often. So this is, this is yeah. <laughs> um, so was I, I that, know. Oh, go for go it. Go ahead. Yeah. I, I, I want to know how you got the name Arthur Elliott. Oh, that's There's easy. There's gotta be a story there. That's easy. So Arthur was my grandfather and Elliot was my father. The funny story is the day when I got that phone call, they said, you got to have a name go register with the state. Right. So I said, all right, Elliot marketing. I was going to name it after my dad. I thought it was a cool name. Now the name of my son, by the way, Elliot marketing group, LLC. So register. Great. Go, go get the domain, elliotmarketinggroup.com. What do you know? Someone didn't register with the state in Charlotte, in, in NAP and NASCAR, you know, Napa, there's, just, there's a little bit of synergy there named Elliot marketing group. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. 
So I had to go back and refile for a DBA as Arthur Elliott. I added my grandfather on. And then as years went by, I got a really great creative director these days, like five years ago, he came and he said, you know what? The marketing group part, it's kind of of redundant. It's classier if we just say Arthur Elliott. So yeah. So if you go to the bank, I'm probably, it's Elliott Marketing Group, DBA, Arthur Elliott Marketing Group, you know, known as Arthur, and our email signatures are Arthur. So whatever. Someday we'll we'll just be AE and... Yeah. Well, there you go. And, you know, AE account exec. No, I, I, I like that because in a world filled with pharmaceutical names that are root words of Greek, you know, words that are just smashed together and try to make some sense because every other word is taken. I like that. I, I think, and the, the fact that it's your grandfather and your dad. Yeah. I think what a cool and honoring thing, man. I like, that's really cool. I like it. Well, ben, I mean, it goes back to Ben's question. I mean, about the entrepreneurial ship, probably somewhere in my brain, didn't think about it, but it was like that connection to the, to the past, to, to the family, to the way they did business, to being an entrepreneur, you know, someday there'll be that, that, that spelled out a little differently for us. So I'm going to take us down a little bit of a rabbit trail because of something that you said, you said something about your father saying, we got to have a real job, you know? Yeah. Well, you could go down the acting thing, but that's not a real job. You know, do you want to have a family? Well, then you need to have a, implying that it's stability, right? Well, what we have seen is there's no stability out there, period, period. So um, my background was in advertising and marketing early on. And my dad, my mom was also, my dad was a, an educator and my mom was a nurse. So, you know, there's some similarities there. And my dad was also an entrepreneur, but he always, he was an entrepreneur because he was an educator that had side gigs to just keep the wheels on. Well, he saw the volatility of the advertising world. And if anybody listening to this is not in that world, here's what happens. You gain a new client. Oh, great. We got Napa and we're going to hire a whole bunch of people. Great. Well, oh, we just lost Napa. Yeah. Three quarters of the agency has just been fired. And we had lived through those heaves and that, those hoes. And I'd been through a partner embezzlement as well, which another crazy thing. So I land a job at First Union when I'm in Charlotte and my dad goes, oh, I'm so glad you finally have a stable job like that. That's so wonderful. My first day there, and this is in 1995. We have a hundred new hires in this 40,000 employee company. And they, the head of HR says, Hey, welcome. Used to be in the banking world that you could retire and you would have a gold pocket watch. If you were just capable and did your job and you just, stuck your nose to the grindstone. Well, those days are over, 1995 again. We hired you for a specific set of skills that we need right now. There's no guarantee we're going to need those tomorrow. So add to your toolbox while you're here. We've got a bunch of great continuing ed programs and a lot of um, personal growth programs that will help you. But just know that there are no guarantees. And I called my dad that day. And I said, Dad, remember when you said this? I said, this was my welcome to corporate America. Yeah. 1995. Well, it's, it's a lot more volatile since then, yeah. quite frankly. So I, I just think that that notion for anybody out there that's listening, if you think that there's stability in anything or, hey, I just landed with a big Fortune 500, I just heard that some prominent mortgage companies just laid off half of their workforce in the last yeah. week. Yeah. Tragic. Yeah, I mean, anybody loses when you lose accounts or business, it's going to happen. Right. Yeah. No, yeah. I agree. I agree. I mean, the job stability to me has just been, just be good at what you do. Right. If you can't do it here, then someone else is going to take you. It's like, I guess one thing back to my dad always said when I was playing baseball, is like, if you can hit, 
they're going to find a role for you. And I think about that, like it's really probably in, in, in our world, I'd say if you can sell, someone will, someone will find you a role one way or other. You can, you know, figure it out, even if it's account management. So I, I, I completely agree with you. There really, if you looked at it, there is no stability anywhere. I guess starting a business though, that's the one thing that I had to learn was if you you can be really good at what you do every day, but running a business is a different job. You know, I think that's everybody's smart enough to know that. And that being good at running a business is a separate, it's a separate conversation. And you don't have to be an entrepreneur to run a business. You can be a manager of something, but anyways. Um, yeah, it's, what, I, it's what gets a lot of small business owners in trouble, right? They, they may be good at a certain skill or trade and then they try and do a business and realize that's not what they're good at, right? right. They were good at doing the trade right, or the job. Right. Now I, and I'm still working through that. Like I still, I really like being in the, I still like writing stuff for like as a copywriter and figuring figuring out the, the the business problem and trying to help the guys solve it. Whereas there's probably someone much better than me at running the agency. But I do think in some respects, what I learned from team sports and that is like, you gain respect from your peers through work ethic and showing that you are good at your position. That was probably the thing that I leaned on. And maybe that goes back to what you're saying, Gary, like I, my confidence level, if anything came from the work I had put in and, and knowing I was decent at something. So these guys would respect me and then therefore hopefully follow me. And that's how I kind of was able to say, let's start a business and run it. Had I just walked into a room, I'd have been way too insecure to go, Hey, Gary and Ben, I'm going to start a business and I want you guys to work for me. You know, that's, that's too arrogant. I, I would never do that. You know, it's funny because most of our guests, either Ben or I have known pretty well. You're, you're probably one of the first that we didn't know as well, but you came because of, you know, your, your biggest cheerleader, David Privatera at Concord <laughs> Construction. <laughs> hey, David, best radio voice in town, by the way. Oh, gosh. Did he tell you about his, did he, did he tell you that he would not let a professional do the voiceover work for his project? He had to do it himself. Is that where this is coming from? He loves, no. yeah, he loved to hear himself on the voiceover. So we had to write the script and everything for David to say it. He, he was so excited about it. It worked out. It was fine. But I still, he's still talking. You ever need anyone else to do a, a voiceover? Just let me know. Okay. Oh, he's, he's funny. So anybody listening to this, go back to the episode, I think, number four of the Anything But Typical podcast with David Privatera. And you'll understand he actually has a very good radio voice. And yeah. he says, he says, yeah, I've got a face made for radio or <laughs> something like that. He's pretty funny. Um, but I want to go back to something that you, you said about your you know, running a business versus what you love to do and all that kind of stuff. How have you navigated that? And what have been some of the, the challenges? Oh, one other statement that I'm going to say, the re what I love about what you've already said, we look for humility. We look for people that are willing to tell the behind the scenes and not just the podium finishes, quite frankly. So that's one of the big screening criteria, quite frankly, for Ben and I on guests. So because David Privatera is such a trusted advisor, we're like, all right, if he's trumpeting your praises, then there's got to be something there. Well, now I understand why. I mean, you're very talented. Anybody listening to this, go to ArthurElliott.com and look at their work. I mean, it's really good. It's, it's, and I don't say that lightly. I'm very critical, typically, of people that were in the industry that I used to be in, because there are a lot of charlatans and half-baked people in there. But I see the work, and I think it's very good. But the fact that you're willing to say, you know, I don't know. There are things that I, I didn't want to do. I, I didn't see myself as this. And, you know, why would you want to follow me? That's humility. I like that. You can you can charge into battle with people that have that self-awareness and that humility. So kudos and Thank kudos you. to you, David, if you're listening. Thanks. Well, I'll say this on that note. The reason why I know David 
and the same goes for him, right? Is we're in a kind of a coaching group or a, a mentorship group together where we help each other. There's 12 other guys. You may know Spencer Luters is in there from 24 hours. Oh yeah. So look, um, he was also a guest on the podcast. Was he? Yeah. As well as your coach, Jeff Wolfberg, if that's the same group. Yeah. Is that the yeah. Same group? Yep. Yep. So, you know, those awesome. guys together, you get them in a room, a lot of laughs, but a lot of like concern and care for each other, a lot of thoughtfulness. And I've always had coaches growing up. I think that's the other thing that gets around the fear of entrepreneurship or the insecurities is just, I've always had people help me. Jim Bailey from Red Moon Marketing um, started up, guys like that. I, I have an executive creative director for a big agency in Chicago that I'm working with now who's uh, once a week we chat. I mean, I'm always looking for Gary. I'd love to sit with you and talk about your past and have you come over and just tell me what I'm doing wrong. That that's, that's, um, that's one thing. Second thing is I was just looking this up to make sure I got it right. There's a great book called the team of rivals about Abraham Lincoln Doris Kearns Goodwin wrote. Right. And the whole concept of this book, I'm not saying so if you like Abe Lincoln, it's great for you, but whole concept was that guy who I consider to be one of the greatest leaders of all time, he, he put people in positions around him that weren't necessarily even his, they were his rivals, right? And they were better at something than he was. So I'll be the first to tell you that I'm not really good at keeping the books. You guys are probably much better at dealing with money than me. So the first thing I knew I had to do was get someone who could help me and I could trust in that position. And Michelle Bach has grown us not through sales, but there's the mother hen of managing all the money and me and advice. And she's a CPA. It's been amazing. And then I have to say, I got a partner. So there's a guy who had, who had bought into that whole, like, Hey, do you want to work for us? He was actually a Napa employee. He was a general manager of us, of one of those States I spoke about and didn't want to work at GPC, genuine parts companies, Napa anymore. So I heard through the grapevine, I think he planted some seeds. He wanted to work at Arthur Elliott. And I was like, you don't really, I mean, we're not going to be able to pay what a Napa general manager would pay. And he's like, no, I just, I want to get into advertising. He lives in Colorado. So fast forward like two or three years, he had really hooked us up. He solidified a lot of the relationships that in Napa, because he was, he, he was just going to his peers and going, Hey, let's use this ad agency. And they're like, of course. And he came three years later and said, I got a job offer, which he knew was going to happen. It happens to, to everybody. And it's three times as much money, a company cards back into the automotive world. And I think at that point, I'm a pretty spiritual guy. I think God was tapping me on the shoulder going, hey, man, this is an opportunity. And what you're going to do is make him a partner. And you're going to let him manage Napa, which was the only client that we I mean, we had these little projects. And we had been for years trying to figure out how to grow, still trying to figure out how to grow, I want to say this correctly, away from Napa, you know, in addition to Napa, because we could grow Napa. We just kept killing it in, in the system. And, and the one thing about that was that makes us unique was that than other ad agencies is Napa is a series of independent store owners that pay us directly. We have no contract with Napa corporate. So we essentially, I learned this from Chad Jenkins, we're stacking bricks, right? We're, we're, we're asking for a couple hundred dollars a month from each store that adds up. You lose a couple of those guys, you don't feel it. You gain a couple, great. Everyone can ring the bell, drink the juice. But so we, we were, we're doing well there, but we couldn't get out of being just an autumn aftermarket automotive agency. So when Martin Valeni came along and, um, and then somehow I tricked him into buying in. He gave me money to be a partner and manage the uh, the Napa system. And what he did too, he came from the sales, you know, Napa quotas. They got charts on the wall that says what these guys are selling that month. And he was like, Chad, he wanted to build a system where they had quotas and they had opportunities and smart goals and all this like corporate stuff. And here I am trying to write funny, witty copy you know? And so he took the business from, I don't know where we were, but he like, he just took over and ran with it. And then when I had my first child, I remember calling him and saying, I need a number two, like you're in Denver, Colorado, but I can't continue to be the spearhead of everything. And he took the reins. He started, he almost 
burned himself out. He was in every meeting, <laughs> you know, he just started taking over operations essentially. So he was in web dev, he was in creative, he was doing all these things. He had no idea about any of this stuff, but he was making sure they were doing their job. And so it created, it created a bit of like um, anxiety and in a good way and a little thrust where all of a sudden everyone's getting challenged. And so yeah, I think the moral of the story is, you know, if you can hire people around you that are better at something than you are, you're only going to make the team better. Like back to the baseball analogy, I, I'm not going to say I was a great catcher. I don't even know how to put the pads on, right? I mean, like, I don't know how to call pitches. And so you got to have the right guy to do that. So what would make me think that I could do this all by myself? And yeah, so I think those are... Abraham Lincoln taught me that. I, I never met him, but uh, I'd like to give him credit. Um, so I'm curious, what position did you play in baseball? There was a guy on the end of the bench, and I was next to him in college. I was on the brown team. Our colors were blue and gold, and I was on the brown <laughs> team, so you can figure that out. I was an outfielder. I was, the, I was um, uh, you know, subject of what you experienced probably at First Union. I got recruited really hard out of high school for a division three program up North, which is really good program. Like they, we went to the world series when I was a freshman and we, we would beat wow. division one teams and a lot of guys on my team went to the pros or, or all Americans. One guy's still coaching. They won't give it up. Triple um, a coach, but um, I showed up the first day and there was like 40 other guys there <laughs> for a baseball, all freshmen. And I, I, my first taste of reality was a, you you're nobody like you were all Catholic growing up, but you're nobody. These kids are coming from all over the Pennsylvania, Ohio, New York, and um, B they're making cuts. So my friend got cut who is a, a year ahead of me. The only kid I knew in the whole school. And the reason why I went there, he got cut. And I realized like, this is reality and you gotta, you gotta do something. So I made the team. I stayed on the team, um, but we had some studs. We had some studs. And then, another reality check coaching change. So my coach that recruited me and had these studs went to the world series. He saw his, his, his reign was ending and he retired and we had this other guy come in and just like a new boss, right. He brought his class with him. And I realized like, I'm not going pro, this is going to happen, but uh, great, great. So many great lessons playing college sports, but to answer your question, man, I'm really bad at this outfield. I was an outfielder. Well, you aren't as bad as I was. I, I was right field and they would they would put me so far right that I'm out of bounds. And I'm like, I'm out of bounds. And they're like, don't worry, the center field fielder will get it. <laughs> you were the kid picking dandelions out in the outfield. <laughs> I was so bad. I was so bad. That's why I had to become a swimmer. <laughs> so, yeah, Andy, you had talked a couple different times about partners and you mentioned earlier that when you were asking around for people to come work for you, that one person said, wanted to do it with you and you ended up saying no what changed for yourself in that time period and maybe it was just the person or the skills that your partner now brings but the difference in in that of saying no I want to do this thing myself and be the the only owner to then eventually taking a partner on well I think it was it was the people you know Martin had a specific skill set and uh you could see that right away and I didn't know how the rest of the team that the, the the really good question there is like, I didn't know how the rest of the team would uh, would adapt to him now being in a leadership position, especially as me appointing him. Um, especially I had, a, I have a, a Stephanie Wilfong, Stephanie Walker now um, had worked with me since day one. And here's this guy coming in and now trumping her and being her boss. And she handled it. We had a conversation. She handled it really well. So that was a concern of mine. Um, but yeah, it came down to people. I think I just saw in Martin his ability to to lead teams. He he led a team of 200 people at Napa. And and the person before, there was a couple of them actually that wanted to be partners. Maybe it was an ethical thing. I just didn't see it. I just didn't see um I didn't think it was gonna work for for their sake and for mainly for the companies. Yeah. I mean, you know, you just kind of see people and how they work and how, how other people are following them or not. So, right. yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to change gears a little bit and have a start to get tactical, right? We can't have a 
podcast on marketing and branding and advertising and not not get tactical for the listeners a little bit. So oh, let's no. start let's start here and then we'll we'll build, but let's start pretty basic of just take us through the process of a new client, right? A client comes on, how are you starting to extract ideas and visions out of these people that come to you for the first time? Well, the magic, I think, Gary, you tell me, Gary, if I'm wrong, but I think a lot of the magic sauce for agencies is in the, before you get the client, like it's how you price and pitch. Nobody seems to really know how to do that. Nobody's given up the secrets. Um, so we've been, we've been, and I've been helping Privetera and stuff like this too, with pitches, you know, today, uh, I think hopefully none of my competitors are listening to this, but I think video pitching, I, I think you've got to do something that's over the top. Like you've got to show up at their doorstep in a chicken costume if you want their attention. And somewhere in there, you've got to be relative to them. You can't just be a chicken unless they're a chicken company. You know, like you've got to show them that you're listening and you're, you've already got an idea brewing, but it, yet we're not going to give you the idea because what would you be paying for if we just give it to you? So there's this total cat and mouse game, I think, that really tricky in the beginning. Then you get the client. Hopefully they love your idea. So we follow kind of a methodology which is not unique to us. It's The, the naming may be unique, but insight, ideate, create. So you've got to hold back the horses from sitting in a room of people and just throwing stuff up against the wall. Like going back to naming something. Like you can't, you can't honestly have a client pay you if you just throw stuff up against a whiteboard and then circle the name you like best. It, it just, that's not fair to them. And it's not the creative process. So the creative process for us is listening and digging in discovery insight. And we've got um, a few months back, we just hired our first director of insight and she's fantastic. Delaney, she lives in Iowa. She's moving to Charlotte, but she comes with so much, so much of that mindset of like digging into research, finding the problem. And like, that's one of the things we go after. If you firm believer in this in, in the creative process or in advertising in general, if you don't find the correct problem to solve from there, everything is wrong. There's just no results that are going to make this client happy. Nothing's going to change. And a lot of times the client doesn't know the wrong the right, wrong problem, if that makes sense. They don't know that no one's identified what's really the pain, the, this, the bruise, whatever's the problem, the cavity. So you got to find that. And once you figure that out, the rest of it, that's where it's fun and easy. Like then you start to identify how do we solve this? So that's the ideation process, the innovation. And there again, I've learned in the past, that's when you start pulling people in and we got to do a better job of this ourselves. You start pulling in different resources that don't work in your company. You know, like, and I tell these vendors of ours all the time, best advice I can give a vendor is just stay in someone's face because, you know, you might have like um, a motion graphics contractor. You're not going to use motion graphics on every project. And they're way too expensive to have on staff for an agency our size, like Rayward may have them, Right. But man, if this guy wants work, just keep showing up because the day you have that ideation session, he's there and he's like, I got a solution that'll help solve this problem. I can make this stuff fly. And you're like, whoa, let's include him in this. And that's how you get kind of really good stuff. I think the sterile nature of when we do this, you go back to the well, you get the same five people in the room and go, what would you do? What would you do? How do we do this? How do we solve this problem? What's the methodology? Well, it worked in this way before. Let's try it again. You got to get out of that line of thinking. And then the last part of that is create or the execution, you know, and that's like any other profession, the, the details, the fine lines, the timelines, the milestones, the deadlines, the results, measuring stuff and making sure we treat, treat the client correctly, you know, execute that idea. If you screw up the beginning and you don't have the right problem, you're never going to be able to create a solution that's correct. And if you can't come up with a great solution, you're not going to win. The client's not going to be happy. And the last part, if you can't execute what you thought of, if you're trying to do a video production shoot with helicopters, but you can't afford it because you can't get clearance from the city of Charlotte to have a helicopter there, can't execute it. So it's not going to work. So those are the three things, three gates, insight, ideate, create, that our creative director has drilled into our heads. And I think that's the the best I can tell you that's kind of the formula that's loose around every project we do. 
Yeah. So one of the, and this is probably because the way my brain, right, is very different than like, I would be terrible if I were in your shoes. Um, but you get a lot of business owners that they may have some sort of vision, but don't know exactly what it looks like. And you have right on your, your website talking about transforming visions into reality. Yeah. Um, and I think that's probably got one of the most difficult pieces of how do you, how do you take those visions that maybe somebody has an idea, but has no idea what it's going to look like, or like you alluded to earlier, they may not even know the right wrong or the right problem that they're trying to solve right now. Yeah. Um, and so, so what, what do you do in those types of scenarios for these people? Cause I'm sure there's a lot of listeners similar to me that can relate to that. What do you do with those types of business owners to actually extract it out the way that you were just talking about? Well, there's, there's, so like any other profession, you research your own. So that's a good, good starting point there. What's on the website. So there are methodologies for creative thinking and you can just keep reading about them. And one of them is that particular thing you're talking about is an archetype. So what you're feeling or what you're reading there, Ben, is the, um, is the archetype of the magician, right? And that's kind of one of the things we chose to say on our website, which points to this magician. Now we're not saying magician overtly because that's kind of cheesy, but there's these different characters in every story this is a methodology and there's a lot of books about it. And you can take a client through this same process. We did this with Privatera when I'll give you, I'll give you an example of what we did with him. We dug in and said, okay, well, he, he wanted branding help. He really wanted to understand who he was. He didn't want a new logo. He didn't want a new name. He just wanted to understand branding. And in that process, he realized he needed a new logo because it didn't reflect, you know, who he was. But one of the first things we did with his vision of what he thought. And here's a guy who's definitely got vision, right? But he can't clarify it. And he's literally saying that to me. Like, I think we're, we're something different. We're going to be what he called Concord 2.0 or 3.0. I can't remember what he said, but I can't get it out of my head. I don't know how this looks, but I can't even put it in words, right? So maybe that's exactly where you're at. So the first thing we did was an archetype test. Who are you of these 12 or 13 archetypes? So Arthur Elliott's the magician, because an ad agency, I believe, is taking elements from different pieces, different pieces and knows how to knows digital media. They know creativity. They know these different things. But without some sort of trick, there, there's nothing there. And the other thing a magician does is it, it takes, he takes something and moves it. He transforms something in, out of nothing, or he pulls a rabbit out of a hat, right? He's he's moving something where there is a creative archetype. <laughs> that person is really a sculptor, right? They're, they're making something out of nothing. So it's kind of two different things. One is I'm taking a business problem as an advertising guy and I'm fixing it. I'm making this company go from A to B. That's, our, that's what I believe our job is. If I was a creative, I'd be spray painting under a bridge, my self-expression of how I feel about this project. That doesn't solve anything. That's just self-expression. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that's great. That's an artist versus an advertising guy. And sometimes they, they obviously mix. So back to Privatera, we gave him a little test and it kind of was like a psychology test. And he got back and, and we said, you're, you're really lining up with this ruler archetype, which I didn't really understand at first. And he jumped out of his chair. He was like, that's, that's so, uh, that's us in a nutshell. Like our job is to be this hub of all these subcontractors and I've got the PL responsibility for the budget for the client. And I make sure people show up on time and they get their work done. I draw the guidelines for how this whole building goes up. And I am in charge. We set the tone. We set the, you know, he went on this. He, you've heard him talk. He goes off on this thing. And he's like, yeah, we're the rulers. Okay, so Ben, so really cool. So then we're like, ruler, well, what about this? What about this? And he didn't like, he didn't want to be a king, right? So there's these images that pop in your head. You want to be this, we gave him the, King Louis the 14th guy with purple pants and stockings. And he's like, no, 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 it's not me. But he wanted to be, um, we gave him like a ranch hand, like a rancher, like, you know, Yellowstone guys. Right. You know, and he was like, yeah, we're herding cattle. It's definitely, you know, we're tough. We're gritty. He kept using gritty sophistication. And then we also said, but you're also a symphony conductor, right? Like you're pointing at different parts of the orchestra and when they play, the building goes up. And if if you're not conducting this thing, which I know firsthand now, 
someone doesn't show up on that job site, the whole project goes up, like timelines are off and all that stuff. So they're orchestrating all these different instruments moving at the same time. He loved that. You put that together. Now you can start to write to those things. And then the creative people can start to think about colors. Well, the color of Kings is gold, copper, you know, and he wanted to be black and copper is where we kind of got to. And he suddenly realized his red, white, and blue CC logo wasn't representing who he really was. And it was a quick, easy, like two C's came together to kind of form a construction pipe or a brand like you'd see on a cow, like a, like a cattle brand. And it all kind of came together and made sense. And he, I think he was ecstatic. He loved it. And, and then the next thing was just executing that. Like we just, how does this play out? Like we could do fence wraps and copper hard hats and all that stuff kind of played out. What, you know, that's so much fun, man. I get so excited talking about it. Cause you hit that one on the head. Like he, he, he had it been in his head, but he just couldn't articulate it. And maybe it was halfway there. That happens a lot too. Like he's, I know who I am, but I don't know how to say this. Right. So our job was to be the magician to take David Privetera's little brain, you know, what's going on there and make it come into this amazing brand that he's got now. And he's so proud of. So um, does that make, does that answer your question? No, nah, I'll be the first to tell you. Doesn't always happen. Like it's not that smooth. Privetera was great because we knew each other. And usually if you follow that methodology and everything goes according to plan, that's where you, you can kind of net out. Sometimes you go halfway down the road and the guy's like, I like the ruler, but I was thinking, I read this book last night, you know, and then it's like, you got to back up and come on guys. You're not, you're not the romance. We just, we're way out. So, so I got to jump in because for anybody that's listened to this podcast and many of you have listened to every episode and we thank you for that, but there's a common theme uh, beyond humility. Another one of those things that's kind of an outcrop from humility is this notion of, Hey, I need a coach. I need coaches. I need other people around me to help me see things that I don't see. I mean, if, Tiger Woods has a swing coach that can't hold a candle to him on the course. That is kind of the epitome of like why you need somebody outside of the jar to help you read the label because you're inside the jar. But, and it takes, so you have demonstrated that by your story. You've already surrounded yourself. You've got outside counsel. You are part of a group that you pay good money for to be part of this and be trained by others. David Trivetera, Privetera, he's, he must be listening. As <laughs> ears must be ringing, we've been talking about yeah. it. Yeah, uh, that's hilarious. Um, so I think that's really wonderful. But it also takes, for having been on the ad agency side, you have to have that same sort of humility in a client to get the best work out of a competent agency. And like, I like a lot of the stuff that you're saying for anybody listening, go to Concord, C-O-N-C-O-R-D-E construction, only at C-O-N-S-T.com. Concord, C-O-R-C-O-N-C-O-R-D-E-C-O-N-S-T.com. And you'll see it's a beautiful site, but more importantly, like you can you can create beautiful stuff, but it's not true to the DNA of the client and the the brand. This this really captures who they are. So kudos to you, good job, and kudos to David Privetera for being a good client that could listen. I like your your approach of insight, ideate, and execute because it's not just creative expression that's paid for by a client for winning awards. Awards are great, but yeah. Yeah. I, I appreciate you saying that. No, it's, um, that is true. You're not always going to win awards and the award is when the client to us, I think we, this sounds salesy, but you know, the award is when the client sees some sort of result, even, even if it's them being excited about who they are, which is what Privetera was. I mean, we're not going to, I knew we're not going to really impact his business. Charlotte being a developer right now, he, he can, he should be crushing it, but um, his team to rally behind that and to have that new identity was really cool that he was proud of the work we did. Maybe that's when I'm walking out of the Mac and my speedo 
that'd be the thing that got you like, that's the guy that helped Concord construction realize who they were. That'd be nice, you know? Yeah. So Andy, one of the things that's interesting about your journey, right. Is how you started, right. Very individualistic, right. You're doing a ton of things yourself, wearing all the hats and then you've been able to grow and evolve since then. So how do you maintain quality and consistency throughout the agency as you've grown, right? Cause you're not the one doing everything. You're not the keystone in the business. So how do you maintain that still? Uh, there's a woman named Jen Bell. She is the, uh, she's the queen of grammar and editing. And so, yeah, you set up checkpoints and, and kind of processes. And we obviously with technology, we use a program um, that it's called Rike, which basically is a task management system so that nothing really should escape the gates of Jen Bell, who's traffic cop slash in the, in the old agencies, you'd call her a traffic person, traffic manager. In today's world, she's also the editing kind of making sure everyone does their stuff, does it on time, and then grammatically checks it and weighs in with her opinions now and then, which is great. Um, and you, then you set a tone. I think culture is a huge thing with our agency, right? First is, you know, our creative director would be the first to tell you nothing goes out the door that looks like crap because it affects everything. Even if it's for, you know, uh, Gary's building a doghouse in his backyard and he wants a little Fido sign. Well, if we don't do that correctly, every neighbor in the street sees it. And, and the next thing you know, we can't charge hundreds of thousands of dollars for the next Concord construction project. So we, we can't have that. And everyone realizes that, I, I hope. And then the second part of the culture is to challenge each other. So when someone's digging into their stuff and editing and, and proofing it, it hurts. I mean, I'll be the first to tell you, it's like, no, nah, no, period goes after the parentheses. You know, there's a common argument with grammar and things and ideas and who's right and who's wrong. And sometimes, sometimes be honest with you, the buck stops at the top and the creative director and myself say, and we argue, the creative director and I over my stuff, but, but everybody should want to be checked. You know, everybody in our, in our company should want someone to go, let me take a look at that and see if I can spice it up. Let me see if I can poke holes and before it goes out, that would be a culture thing. So you have technology, you have like process, and then you have culture. That's like, I want to get better at my job and growth is a core value. It's like written before every meeting we go through our core values. They Anyone who works at Arthralliot should be able to recite the core values because we beat them into their heads. And one of them is growth. And then growth is this challenging idea of how do I get better at my specific job and challenge myself, even if I'm just trying to lose weight or do my first 5K. I need to be challenged, held accountable for that. That's why I come to work every day. Does it happen like that? No, because I'm the guy who wrote those things. But I understand, like, if, if I can get... 50% of the people to buy into that idea, I think we'll be, we'll be fine. I, you know, back to the team thing, you know, you got a baseball team. If everybody on the baseball team is trying to get better and challenge each other for a position or whatever it is, you're going to be fine. You're going to win games. You know, you're not going to let crap go out the door. That's how I kind of manage that. Talk to Martin and Jen and Michelle, the linear thinkers, probably more like you, Ben. They would tell you, we have right, we have a process, everything follows this flow, and there's checkpoints along the way. And that is also true. It's, it's good to have both, both in there, I think. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Well, this has been a really fun conversation. And I, I know we're buttoned up on time, but I probably could keep you on here for another couple of hours. But Gary, you have any, any final thoughts, final questions? No, this has just been a ton of fun. Um, I do know this. I have to go see the place before and after, like the new place that Concord Construction is doing for you. Yeah, that's probably why he's calling you to just let him know that, let you know that there's this massive new change order. <laughs> no, I'm <Yeah>. just kidding. <laughs> well, Gary and, and listeners, we'll uh, go to Andy's LinkedIn and we're going to put uh, links to that in the show notes. But there, I think a couple of days ago, you just posted a, an updated picture of it. Or at least yep. um, Privatera did, and you shared it. Um, but yes. yeah, you can see you can see what it looks like right now. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be really cool. Privatera Concord Construction is doing that. Uh, Don Peden Peden Finian is the architect. They're doing a great job. I think everybody's busting butt to get it done. So it's 200 Foster Avenue, right by Suffolk Punch. A lot of new stuff going in. It's 
it's going to be great. And I hope it's a welcoming part of this. I should say this before we go. The whole idea of this space is to be a community place where a creative hub, if you will, we've built inside this place, a small little theater. So there is a podcasting booth and a place to present to like 30 people. One of the things that I realized Charlotte was missing because I was this customer is a place to have a meeting for around 30 people. That's not going to cost you thousands of dollars. And so for us to have that meeting, we built it inside. And then I thought, well, geez, what if other people could use this space too? So there's this theater and underneath the theater is a little bar that opens to an outdoor patio. It's not huge, right? Like 30 people is not hundreds, it's probably too big, but we wanted local groups to come in and use that space. I would love if you guys came and used the podcast studio or held a live studio you know, put some people in some chairs and did this live. That'd be cool. But that's kind of the idea. We want people in there selfishly, want them to to meet them and see what we do. And unselfishly, I just feel like Charlotte was missing this small group, cool space. And that's what we're trying to do. So kudos to Pete and Finian for helping me with my vision and, and Concord to make it happen. But check that's it out. Cool. 200 Foster. Hopefully by July, we'll be in there and um, would love anyone to come by, just knock on the door. There's open door. Yeah. That's amazing. And then, yeah, we'll, we'll host a live podcast there. We would love that. We'd love that. Yeah. It'd be fun. Well, thank you so much for coming on sharing your story, being so authentic. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me guys. Sorry if I rambled, but I love it.